Last week we uh, worked our way through Joshua chapter 1 and uh, we saw in this chapter this repeated instruction from God to Joshua, be strong and courageous. And Joshua is told to be strong and courageous no less than four times in the chapter, three times by God himself and one time actually by the the, by, by the children of Israel, this, this motley crew that he's leading. And it's amazing that the Israelites themselves are encouraging their leader to be strong and courageous. Um, and then also in, in, in chapter 1, uh, we, we learn that God unlocks for Joshua and the Israelites the, the keys to success. Not success in the eyes of society, but success in the eyes of God himself. And it goes something like this. As we know God through reading his word, we learn to trust him. And as we trust him, we learn to obey. And as we learn to obey, we develop courage in our lives. And it's this courage, which is based on obedience, which is based on trust, and which which is ultimately based on the character of God and knowing it through reading his word, uh, that leads to success. And success in, in, in God's eyes means walking into the land of our experience um, for our eternal inheritance. That's what it means, walking into the land of our experience for our eternal inheritance. And what that means is that, um, is that we recognize that every moment here on earth, is, it matters and is sacred. Then uh, the... The, the Israelites end chapter 1 of the book of Joshua with this excellent chorus in verse 16, which says this, Whatever you have commanded us, we will do, and wherever you send us, we will go. Just as we fully obeyed Moses, so we will fully obey you. Only may the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. Verse 18, whoever rebels against your word and does not obey it, whatever you may command them will be put to death. And then here's this encouragement, only be strong and courageous. So the view now changes from uh, the panorama to the macro, Pat, and uh, from the big wide view uh, of an entire nation to just three people, um, two of whom we never learn the names of, and one of whom is a prostitute. So two anonymous people and a prostitute. So where we are right now is that the nation of Israel are poised to cross the Jordan River in obedience. But prior to that happening, Joshua sends uh, secretly a couple of um, people, spies, on a recce mission, on a reconnaissance mission. And their task, as we read at the start of chapter 2, verse 1, is to go look over the land, especially Jericho. This is their task. So they, so they cross the river and they cross the border incognito, and they make their way towards Jericho, which is about eight miles away from the Israelite camp in Shittim. They end up in the seedier part of town, in the residence of a prostitute named Rahab. And I can imagine these two uh, Israelites looking at each other as they bed down for the night in a brothel, saying to each other, should we be here? I mean, can you imagine if you went on Instagram and saw a picture of a couple of good Christian lads 
that you knew who'd been sent on a missions trip and they'd arrived in the foreign city that God had called them to as missionaries and the Instagram post shows them in the middle of the red light district in front of a brothel and the caption reads, so tired after our flight, ready to put our heads down for the night. It would raise eyebrows. So anyway, back to these spies. Much as they tried to, they were not able to enter this city unnoticed. And of course, as I can testify to, it's a bit hard to hide a foreign accent. Plus, they were probably dressed like Bear grills who'd been lost in the desert for 40 years. And so they'd have stood out a little bit compared to the citizens of Jericho. And I think uh, that it might have been like those westerns, you know, when the, when the lone cowboy walks into the bar and the, and the swing doors open and close behind him and he stands there quietly, you see his silhouette and suddenly every head in the bar swivels to look at him. That's what I imagine kind of happened here. They stood out. And then if we read in, in verse 2, we, we, we meet a king who sends a message to Rahab. And he says this in verse 2 of chapter 2, Look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent this message to Rahab, um, Bring out the men who came to you and entered your house, because they have come to spy out the whole land. So the cover is blown. Um, the game is up. Now this city of Jericho, as, as with the other cities in, in Canaan, would have been independent city-states or little kingdoms, uh, each with its own ruler or king. And so Rahab knows that the police are onto her, so she hides the men. And when the police ask for the men, she lies to them and says in verse 4, Yes, the men came to me, uh, but I did not know where they had come from at dusk. When it was time to close the city gate, they left. I don't know which way they went. Um, go after them quickly, you may catch up with them. And so, in other words, she sends the police off on a wild goose chase. She obstructs the course of justice by lying to the authorities, and in extension, she lies to the king himself. So Rahab is now an aider and an an abettor of foreign spies. She's a traitor. And in this high-stakes game of espionage, if she's caught, she will be executed. There's no doubt about it. And then the author of the book of Joshua then whispers to us, the readers, in kind of the voice of a narrator. And he says this in verse 6, Shh, don't tell anyone, but she's actually taken them upon the roof and hidden them under the stalks of flax that she'd laid out on the roof. And then Rahab spins this yarn about how far these spies might have gone, and if the authorities are quick, then they might catch them. And then she sends the hapless police on their merry way. Now, this, of course, leaves us as the readers with a question. Did I miss something? Why would a citizen of Jericho turn her back on her own country and and betray them to a foreign force? And in verse 8, we actually find out why. Thanks, Pat. 
And it says this in verse 8. Before the spies lay down for the night, she went upon the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear has fallen on us, so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard about it, our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you, for the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. And this is astonishing to hear, like Her confession is massive because what she's telling them, what what she's telling these two spies is not so much that their reputation precedes them. What she's telling them is that God's reputation actually precedes them. And so what she's saying is that the Canaanites have heard these stories. They know that 40 years ago, God parted the, the Red Sea or the Sea of Reeds for the Israelites when they left Egypt. And they know that since that time, 40 years ago, that God has been working on their behalf. But what is it that we're seeing here in Rahab, in these words which which she says there? We're seeing a faith in God that's working itself out in a transformed life. We're seeing transformation, we're seeing change, we're seeing a shift of allegiance from her former way of life uh, to worship of the true God. You see, she was part of a culture that worshipped many gods, uh, who were local gods, small gods, who were jealous, who were demanding, and who were in competition with each other. And some, like Moloch, required the sacrifice of children to make them happy, to maybe appease them. But Rahab, in this statement, is rejecting her polytheistic upbringing And she's embracing worship of the one true God. In short, we're seeing someone uh, who's counting the cost and who's following after God. Rahab here is showing us what life change looks like. She's not hedging her bets. She's not not playing each side against each other. She's not trying trying to curry favor with her, her own people and with God, just in case. She... Because the moment that she lies, she, she hides the spies and she lies, she's showing that her life had changed. This was a huge risk for her to do. There was so much that she did not yet know. Not all of her questions about God, about Yahweh, had been answered. And there was no guarantee for Rahab that this risk, that this venture she was on would end well. And yet in faith, she weighed up her options and she made her choice. And my question to you is is this. It's a rhetorical question. And what is true conversion if it's not fundamentally a change of allegiance? What is true life change if not the change of citizenship from one kingdom to another kingdom? What does it mean to follow Jesus if it doesn't mean to to, uh, take up our cross and to follow him? You see, in Matthew chapter 16, um, verse Verse, verse 26, it says this, What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? So what we're finding out from Rahab is that following Jesus is far from what we make it in our society today. How we add him on as a module in our life that he can be added or removed as we see fit. 
You see, in some ways here in Canada, we're actually functional polytheists. We worship lots of small things. And we might not call them our gods, but ultimately that's what they are. Whether it's living for the weekend, whether it's living for retirement, whether it's media, whether it's our family, whether it's pornography, whether it's alcohol, whatever it is, whether it's, it's good or it's bad, it can become our God, our little God. We're functional polytheists. And these things fill up our time and they fill up our attention and our love and our, and our adoration until even God is pushed onto the periphery or he's pushed out of the picture altogether. But what God calls us to, just as he called Rahab to, is to abandon our local gods, all vying for our attention, and instead to worship him only. He calls us to, uh, to leave these lesser loves and to pursue his greatness. Because following Jesus, contrary to popular Um, understanding, is not like installing an app on our phone that can be removed at a moment's notice when our internal storage gets too full. You see, when we pledge allegiance to Jesus, it, it can mean severing friendships. It can mean being seen as an outsider by your family. It can mean being misunderstood by your work colleagues or being made fun of by your hockey team. But what does it matter if what Rahab says in verse 11 is true, Pat? The Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. If this is true, nothing else matters. If what Rahab says here is true, then this is the single most important thing that that you will ever hear. The Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. Because here's the thing, if Rahab is correct in her understanding of God, then nothing matters more than him. Nothing can matter more than him. And this understanding that Rahab had is the first step in a changed life. But Rahab would not have been raised with this understanding. She would have been raised worshipping the local gods like everyone else. And she'd have heard the stories of Yahweh, the God of the Israelites, like everyone else. But it was Rahab who made this link. The Lord God is, is God in heaven above and on the earth below, which it means that he's the supreme God overall. Therefore, I must do something about it. There were many other citizens of Jericho who did not make that link, but Rahab was the one who did. She understood that if the stories of God were true, that meant that he had a claim on her life. His reputation preceded him. Rahab knew that she had to forsake the sinful ways of her people and of her way of life. She knew that she had to turn her back on the evil that had had pervaded the land. She knew that she had to repent and start again. You see, Canaan wasn't a morally neutral land that was kind of minding its, its own business and living and let live. That's not what Canaan was. Because uh, scripture makes it clear that the inhabitants of Canaan, which includes the people who lived in Jericho, had reached a shocking depth of sin. And in fact, we, if we read in the book of Leviticus chapter 18, verse 24, it says this. It says, do not defile yourself in any of these ways. 
Uh, because this is how the nations that I'm going to drive out before you became defiled. Even the land was defiled, so I punished it for its sin, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. And if we read, in fact, if you turn, you know, either now or later, but if you turn at some point to Leviticus chapter 18 and read those verses that lead up to verse 24, you see this litany of of sexual sin, of wrongdoing and evil, verse after verse after verse. And it's actually quite shocking to read the the, uh, sexual relationships that God says, this is not on, this is not on, this is not on. And it makes for pretty uncomfortable reading. And I'm not going to read it now, but you should read it. You see, folks often think that, that the Canaanites were just a bunch of unfortunate tribes that happened to build their houses on the land that God had already assigned to, to his people. But the truth is that this were a people that were so far gone morally that they had to receive the judgment of Almighty God. In fact, we, we read in verse 18... Uh, sorry, verse 21 of Leviticus 18, it actually talks about um, that this was a nation that regularly uh, sacrificed their children in the fire to Moloch. This was a culture that was not okay. And the tool of judgment that God used were, were the children of Israel. In the similar way to later how God used the Assyrians and the Babylonians to judge the Israelites who had then settled in the land of Canaan. And we happen to live in a country, we happen to live largely in a world where there is no supreme moral standard. We live in a culture where the line between right or wrong is is either decided by the vocal majority or by those who are in power. And it's important that we understand this. Because as with Rahab, there may come a time when we have to make a decision to whom our allegiance is owed. Rahab knew the reputation of God, just like God knew the reputation of the Canaanites. And God's miracles were widely known, just like the sins of the Canaanites were widely known. And the stories of God's power had filtered through the Canaanite cities of Jericho and Ai until they came to the ears of Rahab, the prostitute. And maybe you're like Rahab. You've heard the stories of God. You've seen the lives that he's changed. You've seen former alcoholics living lives of joy, these stories of power and miracle. You've, you've seen the suffering that your Christian friends have gone through, and yet they have a peace and a steadiness that cannot be explained, humanly speaking. Maybe you've seen miracles. Maybe you've seen God actually work in a supernatural way. You've seen it with your own eyes, and yet you're still holding out. You're still playing each side. You're still trying to sit on the fence, but you cannot sit on the fence with Almighty God. You cannot hedge your bets. You see, those who choose God over a life of sin, God is their savior. Jesus is their savior. But those who choose to carry on in their sin and they, and they barricade themselves in and they think that they're safe in the walls of their life, God is not savior. God is known as judge. So if Jesus is not your savior, he will be your judge. 
So my question to you, which was the question that Rahab had to ask herself, is do you believe the testimony of God? Do you believe the stories that you've heard? If so, my encouragement is to be like Rahab and to throw your lot in with God and in with the people of God. Listen to these words from Isaiah chapter 55, verse 6, which says this. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on them and to our God for he will freely pardon. What amazing words. Let's move on to verse 12 of Joshua chapter 2. Yeah, great. Which says this. Now then, this is, this is Rahab speaking. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I've shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and that you will save us from death. Our lives for your lives, the men assured her. If you don't tell what we are doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us the land. And one of the, one of the indicators that our allegiance has changed from the kingdom of the world to the kingdom of God is that we start to care about the souls of others. We realize that if it's true that we are sinners and one day we will face the justice of God, then it's no longer enough that we're saved. We also want others to have what we have We want to bring with us as many people as we possibly can. And the problem is that when we don't view sin seriously, we start to view God like a bigger version of ourselves who gives us a knowing wink and overlooks our sin rather than being the holy God in whom there is no darkness at all. As I've said in the previous sermon, our biggest problem is God's holiness. And so when we choose to to follow Jesus with our whole lives, we experience two powerful emotions. Number one is a sense of relief that we're right with God. And that's a powerful emotion. It sweeps through us. It's like, now I know that things are good between me and God. So that's the first emotion is relief. And the second one is is a burden for those who aren't right with him, for those who are still caught in the quagmire of their own sin. And if you're a Christian here today, if you're a Christ follower, if you follow Jesus, then you know the burden that you feel for your family, for your loved ones, even for the strangers that you see in the street. When you go through a hard time and you recognize how precious it is that the hand of God is holding yours through that hard time and how infinitely lovely it is that the eternal God lives inside you, then your heart cannot help but break for those who are going through life with its hardships and tragedies and don't have God with them, without that knowledge of his presence. You realize that life without God is no life at all. And like Rahab, you start to get compassion for the unsaved. So after getting the uh, spy's assurance of her family's safety, Rahab lets the spies out of the city. And Rahab is a smart woman because she knows that the front gates 
are the only way in and out of the city, and that they will be closely guarded now because the alert has been raised. And so she improvises, she thinks on her feet, she grabs a rope, and she lets them out of her window, which happens to be on the wall, um, onto the ground. Now, prior to them leaving, the spies leave her with a warning in verse 17 through 20, which is, in short, if your family isn't in the house on the day that we come, then verse 19 they say, their blood is on their own heads. You see, Rahab's burden for, for her family and God's trustworthiness aren't enough to secure the safety of Rahab's family. Each of her family also needs to make a personal decision to be in the safe house. This is the only place that they will be spared. And in my mind's eye, I think that in the time between the spies leaving through the rope out of her window and the later attack on Jericho, that most of Rahab's time might have been spent convincing her family of the seriousness of their situation, she had to convince them of what she already believed, that judgment was on its way and that provision had already been made. And as we find out later in chapter 6, Rahab was successful in her endeavor to warn her family of the coming judgment. Verse 23 of chapter 6 tells us that they brought out her entire family. And then, so... Moving back again into chapter 2, after the spies leave Rahab, it says in verse 21 of chapter 2 that, uh, that she tied a scarlet cord in the window. And the purpose of this was to show which was her house. It was a marker. And then the spies go and stay in the hills for three days, and I assume it's the shake any tales that they may have had. It's to make sure that no one was following them. Then they came out of the hills after three days. They crossed over the Jordan. They went back to Joshua and they gave him their report. And then in verse 24, they sum up their report by saying this, the Lord has surely given the whole land into our hands. All the people are melting in fear because of us. Which echo Rahab's words in verse 11, Uh, where she says, when we heard it, our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you. That same word, melting in fear. So here's the irony. Rahab's testimony gave the Israelites the courage that they needed. This, This courage which they lacked 40 years earlier when they turned back from the borders of the promised land. And so we see how God was answering his own words in Joshua chapter 1, you know, which he said four times to be strong and very courageous. And the way that he answered this prayer or this, this call, you know, the way that, that he caused them to be strong and courageous was the testimony of a pagan female prostitute. And nowadays that might not seem like a big deal. But in those days, someone like Rahab would have been the last person that you would have expected for God to use in this way. But that's how God works. And it would be nearly 1,500 years until Peter said in the house of another Gentile called Cornelius in Acts 10 verse 34 that God is no respecter of persons, that God does not show show favoritism, that he can draw anyone to himself, whether it's a noble Gentile like Cornelius or a rotten sinner like Rahab. 
And so here was Rahab 1,500 years earlier, breaking through all of the barriers in her way and finding out that the God of the Israelites could be her God as well. No one told her that it was allowed. No one told her that what she was doing was okay. But she didn't care. She did it anyways. And God responded and he saved her. Like we've already heard, our sermon-based grow groups are starting this week for the spring season. And uh, if you haven't yet signed up, I really encourage you to, because it's such a great experience. And here's a taster of some of the questions which we'll be talking about and discussing this week. Was Rahab right to lie to the local officials when God's people are strictly prohibited from lying? Was that okay? How was there more to Rahab's faith than just belief in doctrines about God? And who in your family do you wish God to rescue along with you? And what can you do to share the good news with them? Through chapter 2 of the book of Joshua, we've met a very singular and very special woman called Rahab. This whole chapter has been pretty much about her. There are kings and priests in the Bible who've had less written about them than Rahab has written about her, this heathen, heathen hooker. And what I hope is that, is that through her story, you realize that there's no one beyond the reach of God's grace. Rahab was immersed in her culture. She was, in fact, helping lead it you know, to this place that God would have to judge it. She was part of the problem. In fact, Rahab was the problem, just like many others were in in her culture. But Rahab was the problem. And there was nothing that Rahab could do to undo what she'd already done. There was no way that she could make it right. And so Rahab's story up until this moment was a story of brokenness, of sin, of mess, of hopelessness. And yet through God's grace, she experienced a second chance. And the impact of this second chance is greater actually than we can really think. And it all started with her hanging this crimson cord outside her window to indicate this safe house. Because it doesn't take a whole heap of imagination to look back to another moment earlier when a crimson mark indicated the safe houses when the angel of death passed through the land of Egypt and passed over the houses that were marked by the blood of the sacrificial lamb and an innocent that took their place and it doesn't take a whole heap of imagination either to cast our minds nearly 1500 years further in the future to the sacrifice of another sacrificial lamb Jesus Christ, who has created an eternal safe house for all who place their trust in him. And so this line which runs through scripture, as we see on the screen, is called the crimson thread of grace. And what it shows is that all of these historical accounts, whether it's the exodus, whether it's what happened in Rahab's apartment, or or whether it's Jesus' death on the cross, are all part of this one refrain which says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Rahab did not, she was not owed anything. She was not owed grace. She was not owed mercy. She was not owed a second chance. She was part of the problem. She was the problem. And just like her 
and just like all of the other Canaanites, we're living in a culture that is breaking down and we are all deserving of the judgment of God. That cannot be argued. And yet God has created for us a safe house and his name is Jesus Christ. You see, Rahab's story doesn't end with Rahab. Through, through God's providence, Rahab marries an Israelite called Salmon and they gave birth to a son whose name was Boaz, who a number of years later would meet another heathen woman called Ruth from Moab, and they would marry, and they would have a son, and they would name him Obed, who would later become the father of a guy called Jesse, who would then have a son whose name is David, who was the king of Israel. So Rahab was David's great-great-grandmother. And then this lineage would actually carry on for another uh, 1,000 years after David when a man called Jacob would have a son whose name was Joseph, who would marry a woman whose name was Mary, who gave birth to a little boy whose name is Jesus, who's also known as the Son of God, as the Savior of the world, as the Lamb of God of God. This is this lineage of grace, this crimson thread of grace that hung out of Rahab's window and became the blood dripping from Jesus hanging on the cross. And it stretches forward to this moment in time as well, where it says that anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And I want you to hear this, is that if this is true of Rahab, then it's true of you as well. And I want to end with a little verse that's hidden away in the book of Hebrews, chapter 11. And this, and this chapter uh, is a chapter that shines repeated spotlights on the heroes of faith. So we have names like Abel, we have names like Abraham, we have names like Isaac and Jacob and Samson. You know, we have names like David, really powerful Israelite men whose acts of heroism and faith are recorded throughout the Bible. But in the middle of this, there's this little verse in verse 31 that says this, By faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. By faith, Rahab accepted the spies. By faith, Rahab threw herself on the mercy of God. By faith, Rahab transferred her allegiance from the kingdom of this world onto the kingdom of the living God. And by faith, Rahab rescued her family. And Rahab showed her faith by hanging the, the scarlet cord of grace from her window. 